Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Allergan, for providing support for our podcast today. Today, we'll be discussing compartment syndrome, including pathophysiology, compartments of the arm, forearm, and hand, as well as diagnosis and treatment. We are joined by Dr. Matani, Duke hand surgeon with faculty appointments in both plastic surgery and orthopedic surgery. Dr. Matani completed his residency at Johns Hopkins and his fellowship here at Duke, and has a wide breadth of practice, including hand surgery and microvascular reconstruction. Thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Matani. Thank you guys for having me. So to start us off, Compartment syndrome results when interstitial tissue pressures within an osteofascial compartment is elevated to sustained non-physiologic pressures. This decreases the blood flow and can result in irreversible ischemia. The etiology of compartment syndrome is numerous and some of the common causes are fracture or soft tissue injury, so traumas, prolonged limb compression, again, usually traumas, arterial injuries, reperfusion injuries, snake bite injuries, electrical burns, hematologic disorders, infections, or iatrogenic. Some of the ways that we cause compartment syndrome iatrogenically include excessive tourniquet ischemia, limb lengthening, closure of fascial defects, constrictive casts, which are common questions on the in-service, complications of interoperative positioning, and sometimes they're exercise-induced. It is important to keep in mind that compartment syndrome can develop in the presence of an open wound. So in terms of the pathophysiology, the way that this actually happens from elevated pressures to irreversible ischemia, it usually follows the same course. So first you see increased compartment pressure due to any of the etiologies we talked about above, most commonly trauma. And then we'll have a venous outflow obstruction. This causes increased capillary permeability. So there's more fluid flowing out of the capillaries and into the tissues. This causes an increased intracompartmental pressure, which decreases the arterial perfusion because your heart cannot pump blood into the area. That decreases tissue oxygenation, which causes first reversible ischemia, then irreversible ischemia. And our goal is to intervene before we get to that point. So Hannah will take us through some of the pertinent anatomy, and then we'll talk about diagnosis and treatments. Thank you, Rosie. I will briefly review the compartments of the arm, forearm, and hand, uh, which are important in when we come to treating compartment syndrome. So starting with the arm, there are three compartments. The deltoid compartment, which has anterior, middle, and posterior subcompartments. Then there is the anterior compartment that contains the biceps, brachialis, and coracobrachialis, the median, ulnar, radial, lateral, and medial antibrachial course distally in the anterior compartment. And the posterior compartment contains the three heads of the triceps, the radial nerve, ulnar nerve, and posterior antibrachial cutaneous nerve. And the posterior compartment is separated from the anterior compartment by the humerus and lateral and medial intermuscular septi. So next, we will review the compartments of the forearm. The forearm also contains three compartments, the dorsal compartment, volar compartment, and the mobile wad. So the volar and dorsal compartments are separated by the radius and ulna, as well as the interosseous membrane. The volar compartment contains the FDS, PT, PL, FCR, and 
FCU superficially and FDP, FPL, and PQ are deep. When performing compartment release, it's important to release the subcompartments via an uh, epimesial layer. In addition to this, the Lacertus fibrosis, which originates from the biceps tendon and fans distally and medially to insert on the PT fascia, and this should be released. This compartment contains the median, ulnar, and anterior interosseous nerves. The dorsal compartment contains EDC, EDM, and ECU superficially, and APL, EPL, EIP, and the supernator, which are deeper. This compartment also contains the PIN. The mobile wad contains the brachioradialis, ECRB, and ECRL. And this compartment contains the radial nerve and the uh, superficial branch, branch of the radial nerve. So finally, we will review the compartments of the hand. Important to keep in mind, the hand also contains the carpal tunnel, thenar compartments, hypothenar compartment, dorsal and palmar interosseous compartments, and the digits. So overall, there are 10 compartments in the hand. There's the thenar compartment, the hypothenar compartment, the adductor compartment, and then there are four dorsal and three volar interossei. So that was quite a mouthful, um, but good to review the anatomy before getting into how we're treating compartment syndrome. Dr. Mertani, I know we are commonly called for compartment syndrome in the hand because we're often hand call. Do you see a lot more of compartment syndrome in the upper arm because of traumas or is it usually in the forearm and hand? Definitely hand is the minority of the compartment syndromes that we see. Um, generally, it's not going to be subjected to the same amount of injury that the extremities are just because uh, or the, the long bones of the extremity are. Uh, the, the things that you have to pay attention to uh, when considering hand compartment syndrome are a prolonged immobilization. So I've seen it in the setting of, of people um, being either intoxicated or incapacitated and laying on their hand uh, or in the setting of a crush injury uh, of the hand, uh, particularly in an industrial type of accident. Those are the things that make you think about it. it, it we'll get into it, I'm sure, a little bit more, but the, the keys to compartment syndrome are really uh, beyond the physical diagnosis and the um, and the understanding of the anatomy, a really high index of suspicion and concern that that's going to be key to not missing uh, compartment syndrome. Exactly. So moving on to some of our um, diagnostic considerations. Again, we're going to consider the history of the injury, and then we'll talk about the five P's, which we are very commonly tested on. Pain with passive stretch, paresthesias, paralysis, pallor, and pulselessness. Pain with passive stretch is the difference in compartment syndrome versus arterial insufficiency. And there are a few other differentiators that we'll talk about when we talk about some of the differential diagnoses here. The predictable progression of the paresthesias usually includes subjective numbness, and then it progresses to hyperesthesias and motor weakness, and then finally anesthesia. In terms of our differential diagnosis, Compartment syndrome is pretty high on our differential because it would be the one thing that we would not want to miss. Arterial insufficiency commonly presents with a lot of these symptoms. They will have paresthesias, paralysis, pallor, and pulselessness, but they will not have pain on passive stretch. Acute carpal tunnel syndrome will have paresthesias. It'll be in the median nerve distribution, and, and usually this is following a trauma like a distal radius fracture. Another differential diagnosis would be nerve laceration. 
So again, you'd have paresthesias and paralysis, but these would be confined to a single nerve distribution. And generally you wouldn't have excessive swelling or pain on passive stretch. And then the last thing that we talk about is miscompartment syndrome. So you'll see some of these common presentations, but something will just be not quite right. It won't be as painful or it won't be as extreme in presentation. We'll touch on the utility of intervention and miscompartment syndrome later. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes when we miss it, it's when the patient's exam isn't very reliable and we are like, you know, it didn't seem like their compartments were very tense and we discount it. Dr. Matani, would you recommend strikering patients or using the striker needle if you, the mechanism leads to high suspicion, even if the compartment seems soft to you and a patient that's not able to, to give a good exam? Certainly, uh, the, the striker needle provides you with some objective data that can kind of enhance your physical exam. I have to emphasize that the compartment syndrome diagnosis is one that's a clinical diagnosis and a high index of suspicion based upon mechanism or history um, is, is really going to be the thing that are leading you towards releasing the compartments. Uh, but certainly in an obtunded patient or um, pediatric patient, uh, somebody that can't give you a reliable exam, it's another piece of data that's very helpful. But your threshold, I think, needs to be really low in terms of operative intervention because for every compartment that gets released unnecessarily, that's not necessarily a, a morbidity. That's, that's not a negative. Uh, but for every uh, compartment syndrome that gets missed, that's a devastating uh, miss for a patient. And, and it certainly has significant medical legal implications as well. And just kind of going off of that, what do you normally see if someone comes in several weeks after a missed diagnosis? How do they normally present? Kind of like Rosie was talking about with uh, that firm woodiness, uh, you know, as you get into the progression of, of uh, the compartment syndrome, there's a, a venous insufficiency that manifests itself. And then with the ischemia of the muscle compartments, that those eventually die and, and then you replace them with fibrosis. So people are going to have, on the mild end of the spectrum, you can get a very minimal compartment syndrome where they're going to have a, a nerve dysfunction. Um, but on the extreme end of the, the, the scale, you'll see finger joint, you'll see hand contractures, uh, and you'll see uh, basically a, a global inability to actively or passively extend the fingers. And, and there's an entire spectrum of, of minor to major that you're going to see these in the compartment syndromes. And almost inevitably, um, the person that comes to you with a missed compartment syndrome you can make that diagnosis uh, based upon the history and, and it'll oftentimes be some type of trauma or prolonged immobilization that, that resulted in, in their injury and, and subsequent uh, disability. So it seems like if you're thinking about releasing, you should probably do it. For sure. And I think especially in our patient population who are, like Dr. Matani said, obtunded or intubated and sedated and you can't get any sort of exam, you know, if we have the ability to strike or needle them to, to use manometry, it's just a great extra tool, but we should be highly suspicious, I think, in these patients. So when we talk about doing manometry on these patients, um, whether that's a needle manometry or a striker handheld or an indwelling catheter, we want to look for a difference between the pressure that we're measuring and the diastolic blood pressure. So an objective diagnosis of compartment syndrome includes 
more than 30 millimeters of mercury overall or more than 15 above the diastolic blood pressure. Within 15 of the diastolic blood pressure. And normal um, pressures are zero to 12, right? Yes. So that gets to basically an absolute increase to above 30, or if it's getting close towards the diastolic blood pressure, that's going to be an indication that you're not going to be able to get basically uh, inflow and outflow. Awesome. Uh, Especially useful in patients who are intubated, unresponsive, pediatric, neurological deficits. So we often see these in people um, with pre-existing neurologic dysfunction, so they can't give you an accurate exam. And should you striker every compartment of the hand or is there a location that's most reliable? Yeah, I think most reliable for, you know, uh, a hand compartment is going to be thenar and hypothenar eminences. It's going to be easier to target those areas, um, and they're going to be most um, generally helpful in terms of getting the data. I think the interosseous are a little bit more of a challenge to to be able to striker. And then, you know, when you're thinking about doing a forearm, as you pointed out, there are different compartments. And so you need to be meticulous about looking at each of the compartments and strikering it. The compartment syndrome starts from deep to superficial. Uh, and, and so the, the pronator quadratus and FDP are gonna be impacted before the FDS and the mobile wad are gonna be. And so you have to make sure that you place the needle sufficiently in each compartment to get an accurate reading. And, and I've definitely seen it a couple of times where you striker the, 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 the volar superficial compartment and it's fine. And then if you advance the needle further into the next compartment, it's not fine. And that's your indication to do a fasciotomy. Um, okay. So you just have to be very um, meticulous about it. And, and, you know, I think that everybody should familiarize themselves with how to use it because it, it's a device that can be employed uh, as a good adjunctive tool, or if you are not doing it correctly, don't have it zeroed right, uh, don't know how to employ it, um, you can basically make up a number. It's a random number generator, so you really need to be familiar with what you're doing. So I know that we don't do this very often. Do you have any tips or tricks for using the striker needle? Usually you're going to want to uh, make sure that when you uh, get your reading that your number is stable. Um, it's definitely possible to have that needle sitting on the edge of the fascia and be injecting the fluid through it uh, and, and get a uh, abnormally high reading. So you need to make sure that it, it stabilizes. So, so oftentimes I will inject and then ever so slightly manipulate the needle so that I'm not sticking some fascia on the end of it so that I just know that, that we're, you know, moving in a millimeter or two will, will make a difference. I, I think that that's, that's probably the best way to go. And, and again, it, you know, th- there's not a lot of value in using that data in isolation. So it, it needs to be an adjunctive tool. M- many times I, I find it, it, it's the thing that you're going to do in the patient that you can't otherwise examine as the adjunctive piece of data that lets you decide that you don't want to take the patient to the operating room because maybe they have a mechanism that's suggestive of a compartment syndrome, but they don't have a clinical exam that would be suggestive of a compartment syndrome or they're unreliable on their exam. So it's, I think I use that more to tell myself that I want to not take somebody to the operating room rather than wanting to take somebody to the operating room. Because my hope would be that I would have just done it based upon the, the circumstances or the exam before using the striker. 
Yeah, no, that's a good way to look at it. Thank you. So overall, overwhelmingly have a high index of suspicion and take them early. And that's on that note, <laughs> we'll talk about and, treatment. And, and the one other thing that you can do, you know, so, you know, the, the striker uh, in every hospital that I've lived, uh, that I've worked in uh, has been in a different location. Uh, sometimes orthopedics keeps it in a closet. Uh, sometimes yes, that's where ours is. OR. <laughs> yes. uh, sometimes it's at the OR desk. Um, and, and many times you, you, you're, um, if you have an ICU patient, you can actually use your A-line setup to be able to, to use it as a surrogate striker needle. So you can use your arterial line catheter and place it in a compartment. And you can, if you zero it correctly, get your readings based upon that. And there's a couple of descriptions available online about just exactly how to set it up. But in a pinch, it's a good thing to have in your back pocket. I have heard that and I've always been tempted. So at some point we'll have to try and see if we can uh, make an instructional video on that. So we can pass along the love. <laughs> so in terms of treatment, um, obviously early recognition is, is the goal. Um, important steps once you recognize it, you wanna remove any external sources of compression. So often we'll think of a cast or a compressive wrap, immediately elevate, um, and then look at the kind of medical resuscitation that they're getting because fluid can exacerbate compartment syndrome. Um, you'll wanna monitor them. Um, and these are all things that are happening on the way to the OR essentially. Um, so you'll wanna monitor them for systemic response to compartment syndrome like myoglobinuria, renal dysfunction. If they need antibiotics, make sure that you're giving them um, for whatever their etiology is. And then assess the need for anticoagulation or possible discontinuation of that. If this is being caused by a hematoma, an expanding hematoma, then you may need to discontinue or reverse any anticoagulation. So operative management initially should include fasciotomies, but also look at the devitalized structures and see if any of those need debriefment and then leave it open. So in terms of incision placement, on the forearm with the volar compartment, Incision will begin proximal to the elbow and include a Henry or McConnell approach. You'll release the Lacerda's fibrosis. And then um, a volar decompression also includes a carpal tunnel release, including the pronator and deep flexors. In terms of the dorsal compartment and mobile wad, a straight dorsal incision is used starting proximal to the extensor inoculum, including the mobile wad. For the hand incision placement, um, like we discussed, carpal tunnel is indicated. Two dorsal longitudinal incisions are made on the hand, um, one between the index and the long, and the second incision will be between the long and the ring finger metacarpals. And that's the access to the interosseous muscles. So you wanna remember that the fibrous septae separate the dorsal and palmar interossei. And so in order to adequately decompress each of those, you have to do circumferential dis dissection along the metacarpals. And the thenar muscles are released via longitudinal incision along the radial aspect of the thumb and the hypothenors are released via incision along the ulnar hand. Adductor pollicis muscle may be released via an incision perpendicular to the skin crease of the thumb index web space. I think about it as, as carpal tunnel release, thenar, hypothenar, and the two dorsal longitudinal incisions exactly as you described. And oftentimes from the more radial of those two dorsal longitudinal incisions, you can get over the top of the um, index metacarpal and not only release the, the um, first dorsal interosseous, but also release the adductor by just advancing more uh, volarly through that incision. So, so I think that that can be decompressed uh, similarly um, uh, in that way. So usually not making a separate incision for the adductor. 
And then do you have a technique for digit incisions? You know, these are more classically going to be um, escharotomies related to significant burns as opposed to a true compartment syndrome. When you think about, um, yes, there are compartments in the digit, but there's no muscle there. So it can tolerate a lot more swelling and, and tightness. Um, but really, if it's an escharotomy, that's what you're going to be dealing with. So you're generally going to just incise it mid-axially, and that's going to uh, allow it to... Um, to kind of uh, free the eschar so that you can have perfusion distally. I would say digital compartment syndrome as a separate etiology outside of burn is, is, is something that's even exceedingly rare and, and I'm not sure that I have seen it. Thanks. Okay, so finally we touched on it earlier, but we wanna discuss the delayed diagnosis of a compartment syndrome and treatment of it. So this diagnosis is made after your irreversible ischemia Surgical debridement may or may not be indicated in the subacute or delayed phase. So Dr. Matani, once we have had a, um, a delayed diagnosis, do you find it more worthwhile to open and debride early, or do you like to wait and kind of let the tissue declare itself before you, you um, open that person up to infection? I think that this is controversial. Um, I, I think... Um... The, the classic teaching has been once there's a miscompartment syndrome that you uh, then uh, don't do anything for a period of time because you're in, in a place of, of ongoing ischemia uh, and fibrosis. And so you're going to, as you said, <laughs> create infection. So you should, you should wait. Uh, there's another you know, couple of, of papers out there about early release to prevent uh, the Volkman's ischemic contracture. Um, I think that if you're going to do an aggressive early release, you have to be prepared to to deal with infection and wound stuff. And I think that the contractor has to be uh, pretty rapid onset and significant to want to get in there. I think that um, for for most people, the, the answer is going to be to wait, let the soft tissues um, heal and, and come to a new normal before talking about intervention. Certainly, you should be um, aggressively um, getting these people into therapy, uh, splinting them, trying to prevent uh, worsening of their contractures, uh, and, and then allowing them to try to regain as much function as quickly as possible. But, but there are pitfalls to, to going in aggressively. And, and I've even recently had, had struggles with, with trying to be too aggressive and, and moving too quickly. So, so you're better off, I think, I think potentially waiting, but, but still making sure that you're managing the, the, the patient with some therapy. Does the age of the patient make a difference? I definitely think that younger patients are more likely to, to be able to tolerate an early, more aggressive approach uh, because they're more likely to be able to revascularize uh, quicker and, and have less of a, a risks and their tissues are generally more pliable. Um, and, and yeah, but, but I think overall the risks are still significant. Right, Hannah so, will take us through postoperative care. Thank you, Rosie. Uh, so postoperatively, all of our efforts should be to reduce edema and preventing contractures, as Dr. Matani said, by using splints um, and then a planned second look if you're concerned about any of the soft tissue. Um, Dr. Matani, we use Dermaclose quite a bit at Duke recently. What are your thoughts about placing Dermaclose at the time of release? And have you had success with closure via 
via Dermaclose? Yeah, we certainly have. I, I think um, it, the, the specific way that you manage it is, um, I think, uh, up to how you approach it. Um, this is a device for, for the listeners that may not know it that basically is an external tissue expander that provides a continuous traction on the skin um, uh, with a, a device that, that provides continuous force. Um, the this is uh, a higher dollar version of the classic Jacob's ladder, which um, you know using vessel loops to secure the edges of the incision. I, I think that uh, trying to close the skin is is probably not a good idea when you immediately release the compartments. But once the edema improves, uh, trying to decrease the size of the wound as expeditiously as possible is going to minimize skin grafting. So everything that you can do to decrease the size of the wound within the tolerance of, of not uh, having a recurrence of the compartment syndrome is a good idea. And I think sometimes a, a negative pressure uh, treatment is, is good. And what I like to do is, um, you know, if I'm going to use a wound back, I'm going to cut my sponge to be smaller than the size of the wounds, uh, hoping that the negative pressure can help uh, bring the, wound, the, the skin edges a little bit closer together. If you're going to use a Dermaclose or a Jacob's Ladder, again, keep on rechecking and applying pressure. And, and you, you're going to always go back on these compartment syndromes because they have an open wound. You're going to check for additional muscle ischemia or tissue ischemia. And then hopefully you can start to sequentially close it uh, as the um, edema improves and the, the condition improves. Thank you. Rosie, did you have anything else to add about uh, for this topic? But I know we've gone through a lot. Yeah, so actually um, one thing I didn't get to ask. So when we were talking about treatments, um, I know typically we'll see an open release. Endoscopic release are, are also in the literature. Um, is there an indication to do endoscopic versus open based on etiology or location, or is it just based on preference and training? I think it's, it's pretty dicey to do an endoscopic release. One of my former partners here at Duke, uh, Fraser Leversedge, actually uh, published a nice study uh, about endoscopic forearm releases and, and actually showed that they did not significantly decompress the compartments. Uh, so uh, endoscopic releases are, are kind of um, reserved for settings where people are doing prophylactic releases um, as opposed to treating a true compartment syndrome. So I, I think that that's probably um, you know, for, for most of us in, in plastic surgery, we're rarely going to be doing a, a, a prophylactic type of release. Um, so I think sticking to the open release, despite the, the morbidity of the large skin incisions, is, is probably the way to go. Um, one of the things that, that we actually, you know, didn't touch on that, that you guys oftentimes get called about with these uh, compartment syndrome considerations, um, especially in the big hospital is um, IV infiltrate, um, particularly in the CT scanner. And, and I think that this gets to uh, the, the management of a compartment syndrome early on for the patient that, that maybe has an evolving compartment syndrome, but it has not, it can go either way. So contrast, CT contrast actually has, is significantly hypertonic. And so what will happen is they'll have an IV infiltrate, will get called because it's the last chapter of every one of our textbooks is IV infiltrate, right? Um, yeah. and, and they'll oftentimes have a benign appearance. Uh, and, and so, but what will happen is over the course of the next three to four hours, probably four or five times the volume that was in the uh, 
infiltrate will then come into the compartment that it was. And, and you can get an extrinsic compartment syndrome. So even if the infiltrate is in the subcutaneous tissue, if enough fluid gets into the subcutaneous tissue uh, secondarily, then you can actually get an extrinsic compartment syndrome. So the skin is actually providing the, the pressure like an external cast will be providing the pressure. Um, and, and so you have to be watching those. And, and you pointed out that that you elevate them, you, you have to be aggressive with them, but you also have to keep on checking on them. And so with these people with early of potential evolving compartment syndromes, you need to be looking back on them every hour or two hours for, for a set period of time. Generally, it's going to be overnight and making sure that their, their exam isn't worsening. So serial exams are key. The other kind of uh, bad actor in terms of infiltrates uh, is peripheral um, uh, nutrition. Uh, so uh, in different settings, sometimes people will get TPN through a peripheral IV, and you oftentimes see that in the pediatric unit, and that is super, super hypertonic, and, and oftentimes an infiltrate of, uh, in a child that, that's even as small as 100 can turn into a compartment syndrome, uh, so you, you really have to have a lot of uh, secondary suspicion for those kinds of things as well. Thank you. That's an excellent point. Yes, Rosie, we get a ton of these. <laughs> like every other consult apartment syndrome a lot of reassurance but a lot of monitoring as well yes yeah you, you'll see you'll see 50 of them in your residency uh and but the one that you miss is going to be the one that haunts you so the, these are the compartment syndrome rule outs are you know you just they're scary because the you know if you're wrong one percent of the time, then then it's a it's a horrible horrible outcome that was totally preventable. So this is probably the thing that that's the most uh, uh, challenging to kind of maintain your um, your vigilance because many of these seem super innocuous, and, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners uh, that get these consults will they they get all sorts of uh, dumb IV infiltrate consults, but it's hard to maintain that 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 vigilance in that setting. So. You just have to be. For sure. Yes. Always an important reminder. So that's the uh, conclusion of our episode. We've talked about compartment syndrome, etiology, diagnosis, and treatment, um, IV infiltrates, and post-operative post care. I think the most salient points to remember, um, obviously, are the five Ps. So the things to look out for with compartment syndrome, pain with passive stretch, paresthesias, paralysis, pallor, and pulselessness. And then the last point would be to always have a high index of suspicion. With all of these syndromes, early release is always the answer. So thank you so much for your assistance, Dr. Matani. Do you have any further comments or advice when managing these patients? No, thank you so much. <laughs> you summed it up great. Great. Thank right. you so much, Dr. Matani. Thank you.